the spring of 1962, I was a child of ten years. Those innocent, sun-filled days were spent swimming and sailing on Lake Pontchartrain in New Orleans. This particular day, my father and I had been sailing on his boat, the Interlude, a modest, double-ended wooden sloop whose leaky hull showed its age. The Interlude was a noticeable step down the status ladder from the larger, newer, more glamorous boats which flanked it on the pier. Boats tend to be metaphors of their owners, and this was no exception. It was an unpretentious boat for an unpretentious man. My father was dressed in his habitual sailing clothes, baggy khaki pants, a blue cotton shirt, and a dark blue baseball cap that covered his short-cropped head of completely gray hair. This attire was as close as he could get to his old Navy uniform, and he wore it whenever he sailed. With his omnipresent cigarette in hand, he shuffled down the concrete pier in a casual gait with me at his side. This quiet man honored simplicity and enjoyed the peace that followed a long, terrible war. This rumpled façade concealed a complex and accomplished man who had witnessed more than his share of human suffering. The son of a country doctor, he graduated from Harvard Medical School in the late 1930s and then served as an officer in the U.S. Navy, in both the Atlantic and the Pacific, during World War II. By the end of the war, he was planning medical support for an invasion of Japan, where they anticipated one million American casualties. In 1946-47, he was stationed, with his wife and infant daughter, in the smoldering Philippines. Upon returning to the States, he left the Navy and specialized in orthopedic surgery. After several moves, he settled in New Orleans in 1952. Now he made his living teaching at Tulane Medical School, performing surgery, and working with crippled children. He sailed to relax. Note, my father was a limb surgeon whose specialties were reconstructive surgery and the rehabilitation of amputees. He was president of the Crippled Children's Hospital and medical director of the Physical Rehabilitation Center at Delgado College, He knew Mary Sherman because they both taught orthopedic surgery at Tulane Medical School in the 1950s and early 60s. He never worked at Oshner's clinic or hospital. He was not a virus researcher and was not involved in the underground medical laboratory in any way. As we walked, we approached a section of the pier referred to as the Visitor's Dock, where sailors from around the world occasionally stopped on their travels. Since New Orleans was the northern port of the Gulf of Mexico, salty boats and weathered crews frequently came straight from the Caribbean and Central America. Some of these boats were remarkably picturesque, more reminiscent of ships from the Great Age of Sail than the sleek modern designs which populated yacht club harbors. This day, an exceptionally nautical-looking boat had slipped into the visitor's dock while we were out sailing. "'Look, Dad, it's a pirate ship!' I said with great excitement. The boat was a gaff-rigged schooner about fifty feet long with a carved wooden figurehead on the bow. A live parrot was perched on a crossbeam in the rigging. Freshly washed clothes were hung out to dry. And there's the pirate, I whispered, letting my wide eyes announce the importance of the news. Coming down the pier towards us was the boat's skipper, a bare-chested, barefoot gypsy, looking every bit like the ancient mariner himself. Never before had I seen such a character in person. His leathery skin held a deep brown tan, 
set off sharply by his tattered sun-bleached pants cut below the knee. Long curls of gray hair haphazardly fell from under the bandana tied around his head. On his shoulders sat a small, mischievous monkey, about twelve inches tall, tethered on a leash. As we passed, the pirate smiled at us. His eyes sparkled. The monkey studied us with his small round head and big brown eyes. Despite my intrigue, I gave them a wide berth and tried not to stare, but it was difficult. My thoughts were now focused on the monkey. I had seen plenty of monkeys before, mostly in the zoo, but I'd never thought about having a monkey as a pet. We had a dog. Why not a monkey? It would be much more interesting. So I asked my father, Dad, can I get a monkey for a pet? No, was his immediate answer. After a pause, Tentatives was the third most powerful man in that body and was considered by many to be LBJ's man in the house. Tulane was a major watering hole for the Louisiana delegation, and it got pork whenever they could dish it out. Bear and Ellender were in terrific position to assure that Tulane received pork in the form of CIA research contracts. CIA projects were hidden from both Soviet and American scrutiny by placing them in other agencies' budgets, such as the National Institutes of Health, in the various military branches, or in private foundations. From what I heard through Tulane's student grapevine over the years, I must conclude that Tulane was definitely involved in both NIH and CIA-sponsored projects, especially research with psychoactive drugs. Why would the CIA be interested in doing medical research? There were three main reasons. One, mind control. Two, to get rid of Castro or other foreign leaders. And three, to keep up with the Soviets. First, mind control. The CIA's much-publicized LSD experiments were just the beginning of their efforts to get people to talk when they wanted, to sleep when they wanted, and to kill when they wanted. Their general mind control project was called Operation Artichoke. Secondly, the CIA was trying to get rid of Fidel Castro and communism in the Western Hemisphere. They tried to use their mind-altering resources and other medical tactics to discredit Castro. The project was called MKUltra. One specific plan was to spray a hallucinogenic drug in Castro's personal radio studio, so that he would make a fool out of himself during a national radio broadcast. Then they decided to kill him. Their new team was called ZR Rifle, and its job was to explore exotic ways of advancing the date of his death. The CIA's medical director for these projects was brain function expert Dr. Sidney Gottlieb. The name Gottlieb shows up frequently in AIDS literature. Dr. Michael S. Gottlieb is an immunologist at UCLA Medical School who discovered AIDS in 1981. Dr. A. Arthur Gottlieb is also an immunologist and is a professor at Tulane Medical School, as is his wife. In 1972, A. Arthur Gottlieb was chosen by the U.S. Army's Biological Warfare Laboratory at Fort Detrick, Maryland, to edit its book on infectious diseases. Please note that I have no information to suggest whether or not there is any relationship between Dr. Sidney Gottlieb, Dr. Michael S. Gottlieb, or Dr. A. Arthur Gottlieb, so the listener should be cautious about any such conclusions. One of the best sources of information on the secret war against Cuba is a book called 
Deadly Secrets, The CIA Mafia War Against Castro and the Assassination of JFK, written by Warren Hinkle and William Turner. Turner is an ex-FBI agent who specialized in the political right. He worked with Jim Garrison on his JFK probe and was inside David Ferry's apartment. His writing partner, Warren Hinkle, was editor of Rampart's magazine. In Deadly Secrets, they made numerous references to the fact that the CIA was getting the best minds in America, and particularly from the universities, involved in figuring out exotic ways to eliminate Castro and his government from Cuba. Hinkle and Turner explained the frustration of the Kennedy White House. After spending hundreds of millions of dollars and recruiting thousands of Cuban exiles for Operation Mongoose, a free Cuba paramilitary operation based on the campus of the University of Miami, the Kennedy brothers wanted to see some action. They pressured the CIA for more tangible and immediate results and encouraged the use of alternative means to remove Castro and communism from Cuba. Consider this passage. The pressure for more spectacular results was on Lansdale, CIA, who was in almost daily contact with the Attorney General, Bobby Kennedy. He passed the pressure on to an interagency group formulating plans for approval by the SGA, Special Group Augmented, a CIA White House task force focused on Cuba, saying that it is our job to put the American genius to work on this project quickly and effectively. This demands a change from the business as usual and a hard facing of the fact that we are in a combat situation where we have been given full command. Lansdale hinted that we might uncork the touchdown play independently of the institutional program we are spurring. Other than naming the University of Miami, Deadly Secrets does not say which universities were involved. Was Tulane, one of the universities asked, to put the American genius to work? It certainly would have fit into the economic interests and anti-communist sentiment of the New Orleans business community. It would have fit into the tradition of close cooperation between CIA officials and certain members of the Tulane board, most notably Sam Zemery, who was chairman of both the United Fruit Company and the Tulane University Board of Directors in 1954 when the CIA produced a coup d'etat in Guatemala to reclaim 250,000 acres of United Fruit land which had been nationalized by Guatemala's democratically elected government. And the project would have been considered pork by the elected political officials who were in a position to approve the budget. And what of Lansdale's proposal to uncork the touchdown play independently of the institutional program? Does this not suggest that there were some back channels open which were not officially or overtly connected to institutions? Was he referring to the CIA's much-publicized use of the mafia to try to kill Castro? Or might he have been referring to an underground medical laboratory run by politically sympathetic scientists who might develop a biological means of eliminating the entire Cuban leadership? Thirdly, the CIA would have been interested in medical research for political reasons. In the 1950s and 1960s, Soviet scientists were ahead of U.S. scientists in certain areas of medical research, one of which was the investigation of cancer-causing monkey viruses. The Soviets were explicit as early as 1951 about their demonstration that certain simian viruses caused a variety of cancers. This was six to eight years before American government researchers produced the same results. 
This Soviet edge was a concern for American Cold War planners who monitored Soviet scientific journals. From their perspective, this was just another Soviet threat. Either the Soviets might use this information to develop a sexually transmitted biological weapon to undermine freedom in the promiscuous West, or they might develop a cure for cancer before the U.S. did, and thereby cause a major American political embarrassment. Either could provide sufficient reason for the CIA not to want the U.S. to fall behind the Soviets in this important area. Whatever the motive, the U.S. government wanted the work done. The money was provided for researching monkey viruses through convenient channels, but the doctors were not supposed to talk about it. In the process, New Orleans became one of the leading centers of knowledge about immunology and retroviruses. The doctors at Tulane who specialized in cancer and pathology had access to this knowledge, to these monkeys, and to their viruses.